Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, the entire chapter. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, then delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness, as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions, while they feast with you having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, 
after they had escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. Carmen and I met in a little Jesus people type church back in college. Uh, one of the things that, that church did, and really credit to them, was they really emphasized evangelism. And that meant going door to door. It meant the whole knock on the door, meet strangers, share the gospel. We did a lot of that. And uh, if you do that for quite a while, you end up meeting some very interesting people. One of which was a, a young man. He was in college at EKU uh, on the football team and stereotypical football kind of guy, if you want to picture him in your mind. Um, knock on his dorm room. He invites us in. We're talking to him. He's really jovial. We ask him religious questions. He's very happy to talk religion. Are you a member of a church? Oh, well, yes and no. I don't really believe in membership, but... Uh, I'm really a part of two churches. Well, okay, there's a lot of that going around. It's not a good idea, but okay. Uh, one of the churches, he says, is uh, the church I grew up in, which is Jehovah's Witness. But the other one's the Southern Baptist Church, and I'm a member of both of them. And I thought to myself, how does that work? Because doctrinally, they're not together at any point. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I grew up Jehovah's Witness, and I really like what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, so I'm real comfortable there. I'm not going to ever leave that, I don't think, might, I don't know. But I go to the Southern Baptist Church because they just really know how to worship and clap, and they really get into it, and they're really excited. So I guess you could call me a Jehovah's Baptist. <laughs> it's weird, but that's actually where people can be today. We live in a world where the average person, and I would say probably the average church attender, uh, sees the world of spirituality almost as a smorgasbord. There is laid out a table of options. You have your plate, and you can go craft the plate that you want. You know, a little bit of green beans, a little bit of tacos, a little bit of uh, a little bit of the corn there, just shape the plate you want it spiritually because after all, isn't that what everybody does? They uh, go to uh, the religious world and they pick out the parts they like and they kind of craft a religious uh, worldview there. I mean, that's what we've been doing since the Reformation, right? They blame this on the Reformation. They say, look, you know, the Reformation brought in thousands of denominations. Uh, what is that but everybody inventing their own religion the way they want to have it? So why can't I do the same? I mean, 
there's that table laid out of all these different options. Why don't I just create a religion too? It's the in vogue thing since the 16th century. I will admit that the Reformation has unfortunately caused some of that, but it is a misconception of what the Reformation is. The Reformation was not about people crafting a religion the way they want it to be. The Reformation may be broken and cracked and in need of great repair, but the Reformation was about returning to the right way, the singular way, the true way of being Christian. It was not a create your own option kind of thing, and that was not in the mind of those who began the Reformational churches. What was in their mind was, God has revealed truth. I want to receive his truth. I specifically don't want a smorgasbord of options. I want what is godly and pure. What I find in the scriptures, that is what I desire. Now, at this point, I have hit a point where... Uh, in, in the, the, the church at large, there is a major uh, controversy. And if, if there were Romanists here or if there were Eastern Orthodox people here, they would raise their hand and say, Pastor Russ, you put a slant on things. You have identified what is godly and true and what God has revealed as being what the scripture says. Don't you realize... It was the church that gave you the scriptures. After all, everyone who wrote in the New Testament was a Roman Catholic Christian, according to them. At this point, nobody would know what Roman Catholicism is, but let that go to the side. The, 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 the church gave you the Bible. Therefore, the Bible can't be the final authority because the church is the one that created it. Protestants would respond generally you have the cart before the horse the scripture is from what the church springs out of god has spoken in scripture and the, the pattern of what the church is supposed to look like it is in scripture so really the bible gave you the church i am not completely sure that that second statement is perfectly accurate the truth is, while the earliest of Christian churches had a Bible, that Bible for the first bit was the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament was circulating among them, and yet there was a church. The church did not give us the Bible, and the Bible does not, quote, give us the church, but rather what has happened, and this is in Scripture, if you look for it, you will find it, the Holy Spirit has moved among men, and it has drawn out of the world a church. The Holy Spirit has moved among men, and the Holy Spirit has inspired the writers of the Bible. The Holy Spirit has given us both. Are we in Christ? The Spirit has drawn us to that. If we're in Christ, we're in the church. Do we have a Bible? The Spirit is the ultimate author. 
And so the spirit is the foundation. But the word does regulate the church. What do you find in the New Testament? Well, in a lot of it, it is overtly the apostles of Jesus Christ speaking for Jesus Christ, speaking directly to a broken church and saying to the church, this is the pattern of God. This is what you're supposed to be, but you're this. Over and over again, that's what you find in the epistles. The Holy Spirit regulating, healing, defining, and shaping the church so that it will be what God wants it to be. We call scriptures prophetic. What do we mean when we say that? Well, the average person would hear us saying, oh, the scriptures predict the future because prophets predict the future. Well, there are some predictions in scripture without doubt, but that is not what we mean when we say scripture is prophetic. We mean scripture is the outworking of the prophets. A prophet is someone whom God sends to his church. A prophet comes from God and says, I have a word from the Lord. And when the prophet comes, what is it usually like? Is it the prophet coming and patting you on the back? I have a word from the Lord. You are doing great. God just wanted to send from the throne to let you know he is, he is amazed at you. You are just, you're doing fine. Is that how Isaiah reads? Is that how the Apostle Paul reads? In history, when God sends a prophet, it's not good news that a prophet has come. It means you messing up. Read the prophets and you'll see God never, well, God very rarely sends an attaboy. There are a few exceptions, but most of the time when a prophet shows up, you really need to listen because you need to amend your life because God is calling you to repentance and accountability. Well, the scriptures are prophetic. They call God's people to the pattern, the plan, the, the shape of what their Christian life is to look like it calls the church to its shape. And so while the, the church doesn't grow out of the scriptures, the scriptures shape and mold the church. God is telling us what should be and what should not be, what we would believe and what we should not believe. And because that is the nature of the scriptures, um, or the way the apostle Paul puts it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to know what the truth is, you will find it in scripture. It is interesting, though, and that was quoting from 2 Timothy chapter 3. The context of Paul saying that is established a few verses back. It begins with, 
But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned. And then it builds up to all scripture. That is what you learned. You should continue in that. And the reason is, I mean, it's the truth, but there are evil men and impostors. They're going to grow worse and worse. They're going to deceive and they are deceived. And so the apostle defines true doctrine as the scriptures. That's where you find it. And anything contrary to that is, in fact, a false teaching, a false doctrine. And it is false teaching and false doctrine that the apostle Peter here in chapter 2 is dealing with. He is dealing with evil men who are deceived. They are deceiving. They're going from worse to worse. Well, Peter paints a huge three-dimensional picture of what that looks like. What his colleague in the apostolic office said so briefly, Peter gives us the biggest chapter in 2 Peter. What happens when we listen to false teachers? What is going on when that, that takes place? Well, the Apostle Peter doesn't spare our feelings in any way. In chapter 18, he says, you are doing this because you are walking in the flesh. The flesh has hold of you. That's why you like false teaching. Verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, which is one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible, and at some point I want to use that on somebody. <laughs> when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through, through what? Through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness. So the Apostle Peter says, if you are drawn to false teaching, you listen to false teaching, if you go to the smorgasbord and say, I'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, um, what's happening is your flesh is driving you. It is not a good thing when the flesh is driving you. The flesh loves false teaching. The reason the flesh loves false teaching is because Everything that false teaching says feeds the flesh. And so it's very much like going to the smorgasbord. The flesh has an appetite and it wants to eat. And you find false teaching to be attractive. The flesh wants to undo a certain separation that has taken place. In our culture... There is no greater virtue than the virtue of inclusivity. Everyone should be included. No one should be left out. If you have an understanding of life that allows you to be exclusive, to draw a wall and say, this person is outside and this person is inside, you are a bad person, according to our society. Nothing is worse 
according to the current spirit of the age, than to be exclusive. But the scriptures from first to last are exclusive. They regulate the Christian life, they regulate the church, and in so doing, they draw a very clean line between whether you are walking in the kingdom, in the light, in Christ, or whether you are walking outside of Christ. And it is very exclusive. And Peter says here that uh, these false teachers are, quote, uh, drawing people away from having escaped from the pollutions that are in the world through lust. Now, uh, the verse that I am quoting is, uh, you will find it slightly different depending upon the translation. The, the New King James says they have actually escaped. But the false teacher lures them, lures them with their flesh, and even though they have escaped, now they go back into the world. The ESV, or something like that, reads barely escaping. So they are standing at the edge, they are almost on the verge, but the false teacher lures them and draws out those who haven't really escaped yet, but they almost were going to. It can look like a major issue because depending upon the reading, you can say you can lose your faith. Uh, the false teacher takes people who have already escaped the world and its corruptions and pulls them out again. So that's losing your faith, right? I mean, it's better at the end of this, Peter says, that they should not have even known anything about Christ than having known him to have gone back out of the world. So isn't that losing your faith? It is probably the fact that you could read that and kind of see that at the first interpretation that a scribe quickly changed it to, it can't possibly mean that, so changed it to barely escaping. These people, these people really are out of the world. That's why they go back. Well, the, the scribe who made the change had the right doctrine, but it's never right to change the scripture. And having escaped from the corruption that is in the world, Peter is talking positionally. He is not talking about whether they are converted people at this point. And at the end of the chapter, he will be very clear that they are not converted people because... In verse 22, it reads, but it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So he takes a biblical proverb. The first one is from the book of Proverbs, the true proverb, as he describes it. And then he takes a Greek proverb, which we receive from several of the philosophers, and he says, if you're a dog, you do dog things. And one of the things that dogs do is they return to their own vomit. If you're a sow, you do sow things. And what a sow does is after you've washed it, it jumps back in the mire. So it's very clear at the end of the chapter, Peter is talking about lost people 
they were not transformed like we were talking about in Bible study this morning. Every saved person is internally transformed. They, they've been brought to new life. They're born again. These people are not that. But nevertheless, they had been drawn out of the world. You see, the Bible makes a very clear distinction between being in the visible covenant of God and being outside of it. If you are walking with God's people in the light, you are out of the world. This is a totally different world that we inhabit. Life in the kingdom of God is supposed to be according to totally different rules, rules of holiness, rules of what life is going to be like in the coming kingdom, uh, you have left the world if you have entered into God's true church. The only thing, though, is that not everybody who is in God's true church, meaningfully, membership-wise, is nevertheless a converted person. It should be very clear when you look at the average church Everybody sitting in the pews is not guaranteed to be a converted person, even though they may be a deacon. They've left the world. They're in God's kingdom, outwardly, visibly, but they're still a dog, they're still a sow, and what's going to happen is ultimately truth is going to out. If you are a dog, if you're a sow, and you're living among the holy people of God, Walking in the light, if it is the light, if, if the teaching of the pulpit, if the teaching of the, the classes comes from the Word of God, if the average person in the church upholds the truth of God, and you're still a dog, you're still a sow, how you going to feel? Are you going to be comfortable in the light if you are inherently dark? The truth is, no. Just like, again, in 1 John, which we've been going through in Bible study, ultimately, if you're not of the light, you're going to leave the light because the light is uncomfortable for you. Or God in his providence will use the light to convert you. I think I've told this story a couple of times, but there's new people and my memory's going, so I'm going to repeat stories anyway, so get used to it. Um... Back in the day, Carmen was part of a, um, an, an evangelism class. Um, it was taking place at the local evangelical church. It was sharing how to share your faith. Uh, evangelism Explosion was called. Pretty good stuff. Uh, there was a man who uh, heard about the class, and he wasn't a part of the evangelical church holding it. He was a elder at the local Presbyterian church downtown, a pillar of the community, really nice guy, I knew him. Um, he, he read this, he said, you know, I'm, I'm an elder at the church, I really ought to know how to share my faith, I'm going to go sign up, I'm going to go down to the, the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance Church and go to the evangelist class. Well, he did that, and about four weeks into it, he realized, this isn't true of me at all. I don't trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. I think I'm a pretty good guy, and everybody says to me I'm a pretty good guy, so I've always trusted I'm a good guy. Aren't I going to heaven? Apparently the scripture says no, and that evangelism explosion class got to bring the first fruits of their efforts to life 
in that he repented and was converted. The light will have its work. But the work of the light may be that the cockroach is hated and they scurry to the darkness. And when the false teacher comes along and lures them by the flesh, that's going to be very appealing, whereas the light of God is going to have always been uncomfortable. So off they go. It's not a good thing for them that they left, though. They have walked away from the light, and they have been lured by their flesh. The average evangelical churchman has absolutely no uh, discernment in what they read and study. I wish that weren't the case, but in this generation we live in, if it could be found at a Zondervan's Bible bookstore, the average Christian will read it. And I know those stores are closed now and it's all online, but you could go into those stores and walk the aisles of those stores and side by side, you would find solid biblical teaching right next to one of the most heretical books ever found. And they're both for $6.99 on sale this week. If you believe that the spiritual life is a smorgasbord, you're perfectly okay with that because a little bit of this, a little bit of that, what's, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that testifies that you're walking in the flesh. There is one truth. If you like a varied flavor, it is your flesh. And Peter says these people allure you by the flesh. Now, he's talking about false teaching, and if you're following me in this sermon, uh, you may be asking a question mentally. I know I certainly was when I put this together. Uh, Pastor Westbrook, what you're saying makes a lot of sense when it comes to false teaching concerning things that we tend to think of as fleshy. You know, uh, LGBTQ type stuff or uh, you deserve a Cadillac or doesn't God want me to be happy, you know, that sort of thing. What you're saying makes perfect sense there, but false teaching also includes things like the doctrine of the Trinity, which you preached on three weeks ago, or the hypostatic union of Christ, where he is one person with two natures. How is it that false teaching appeals to the flesh in things like that? Because Peter is talking about false teachers across the board. Well, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, it's a matter of the flesh in both cases. It's obvious when you're talking about you know, I want to move in with my girlfriend, and the Bible seems to say I can't do that. But what happens when you're dealing with something like the doctrine of the Trinity? All the way through history, false teaching on those kind of doctrines, almost 100%. I mean, there might be an exception. I can't think of one. But almost 100%, it has been an attempt by human beings to make definable something that is a mystery but revealed. Now, make no mistake, the Bible is reasonable. Anything that human reason can lay hold on 
when you come to the Bible, the Bible presents you with the reasonable truth, and you can parallel the two if you really have true reason. Okay, you know, the Bible says this, and the world shows me that. But there are some things the Bible reveals that you honestly cannot see with your eyes or measure with a measuring stick. The hypostatic union of Jesus. He is one person, but he has two natures. They exist at the same place. They're not co-joined as if they muddle one another, but they are co-joined. He literally has two natures, but is one person. The human mind goes, that is beyond my ability to shape and mold and define. I really, really hate that. I hate that the fact that God has said something to me that is beyond my ability to limit it in my comprehension. So I'm going to attempt to make it reasonable and rational to my understanding. Well, if you are trying to force onto the word of God your own reason and understanding, what are you doing but walking by the flesh? The flesh doesn't just have a heart, the flesh has a mind. And the flesh wants to be lord of everything it lays hold of. So if you are listening to false teachers, your flesh is going, give me more, give me more, give me more. I want to be your master. And Peter says, by whatever you're overcome, you're enslaved. And the flesh is what's overcome you. That's what's happening when we listen to false teachers. And how can it be any different... Because you really can't get water from the well without the water partaking of the nature of the well it was drawn from. False teachers, Peter says, promise you liberty. Isn't that an, an interesting thing? 2,000 years ago, human beings really cared about being free. Surprising, I know. It is in our human nature to love freedom. And real freedom is actually a gift. But the false teacher promises freedom, but they themselves are a slave of corruption. They themselves are a slave of the flesh. And that's why they do what they do, and that's what's contained in their teaching. Did you, did you hear how Peter described the false teacher? It is an ugly picture. They are like Balaam, son of Beor. We just went through that narrative in Numbers a few months ago. Balaam is given by God to actually have prophetic abilities. He is called a prophet. He's called a prophet here. God speaks to him, but what is Balaam motivated by? He's motivated by money. And he's motivated by money all the way through the narrative. When God steps into the way of Balaam and doesn't let him get away with what he's doing, Balaam says, okay, fine, and he gives God's prophecy. But then the very next thing he does is he tells the king he's working for, Look, hey, I can't curse them because God won't let me. But, you know, I want your money. So let me give you a scenario where you can set them up in a trap 
and the trap does work wonders, and Balaam gets his funds. The false teacher doesn't love you. The false teacher is walking according to the flesh. He cannot understand spiritual things. Peter says they are like brute beasts who don't understand spiritual things. They're arrogant people, and they don't love you. Which is ironic because they will tell you what you want to hear. They will make you feel like they love you because in saying what you want to hear, the flesh interprets that as love. But real love cares about you. Real love says, thus saith the Lord. And thus saith the Lord is despised by the flesh. And when somebody comes and says, thus saith the Lord to us, our first reaction is to punch them. And I said, our first reaction, because your minister is no different than you. The flesh is always there. It is always lurking to, to take control. And real love can be offensive. Whereas setting you up for destruction can feel like love and kindness. And so if you drink from a poisoned well, expect what is in your cup to be poisoned. There is, however, good news, and that is God is fully aware of the situation, and he is constantly winnowing his church. He is constantly defending its purity. The real key verse is... Um, verse 9. Peter is taking us through this list of people who are like the false teachers, which includes fallen angels, which includes the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But then in verse 9, Peter says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The psalm we just sang, Psalm 11, what did we sing? Well, the psalm says at the beginning, there are people saying to us, you need to run away. Because the wicked are out there in the darkness with their bows, they're going to shoot you. They're destroying the foundations, and when the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous even do? Go flee. Go flee to your mountain. Run away. But the psalmist says, how can you say that to me? Because the next part of the psalm is, don't you realize the Lord is in his holy temple? The Lord is sitting as ruler, and the Lord sees everything going on. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord sends burning coals upon the wicked. Why would you tell me to run away? God is very much involved, and God will defend his church, and God will make a distinction. See, uh, God cares very much about the purity of his church. And it is God himself who has set up this system whereby if you have people that are part of the visible church and they're not converted, the truth will drive them away like lights with cockroaches. 
Think about the feeding of the 5,000. There are very few things that make it into all four Gospels. But the feeding of the 5,000 is one of them. The feeding of the 5,000 is a magnificent testimony to the Messiahship of Jesus. It is a very positive thing, and all of the Gospels make it so. But John tells us what happens the next day. And that doesn't get preached on quite as much. Because it's kind of a downer, but this is what happens the next day. Everybody who ate was really grateful for the food, and a number of them said, this guy can make food out of thin air. We need to keep him around, because if he can make food out of thin air, all of our economic problems are fixed, right? So they go find him, but they're not looking for Jesus the Christ. They're looking for Jesus the food machine, and they approach him and say, where you been? And by the way, could you make us more food? And that brings us to verse 60 to 66, where we read, when Jesus, him, you got the wrong passage. Um, and it's, it's important enough that I'm going to turn to it. John 6, 66 to the, the to verse 60 to 66. Christ says, you don't need physical food. You need my body and blood. You need me to be the sacrifice for your sins. And at 60, we take up, therefore, many of his disciples, so the term disciple is used to these people, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And then what we read next is that Jesus, wanting to be a very winsome person and not wanting to be offensive to anybody at all, uh, kind of softens his message and says, well, no, you know, it's okay. Um, here, have, have some lunch. No, what we read next is when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, you look the average person in the eye and say, you don't have any faith. Uh, today, they'll take you to your elder board and say, you're not winsome. You're being a meanie. But remember, the false teacher doesn't love you. The true teacher will offend you. And the truest of all truest teachers just looked all these people in the eye and said, you don't have any faith. You don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who betrayed him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Now, these people are disciples. They have been walking with Jesus. They've been part of the visible community. Uh, it doesn't say they're false disciples. I use this passage a lot when I talk about the nature of the church, and the average evangelical comes back at me and says, no, these are false disciples. These are not disciples. These are false disciples. 
text doesn't say that. The term false is not used. It is disciple. And if I remember correctly, they're called disciples four or five times in these verses. But they aren't believers. And Jesus knows that some of his disciples don't believe. And he says, you can't really come to me, even though you're in the visible church, you can't really come to me unless the Father draws you. And what is the response after this? Verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus doesn't particularly like this, and he turns to the disciples and says, are you going away too? I mean, you can hear the sorrow in his voice. But what has just happened is that the church of Christ has been purified. These are unbelievers. They're walking in the flesh. They want the food. They want the things the flesh is craving. Jesus preaches the truth, and the truth will have its way. The truth will either draw you to him, the Father will call you through his glory and virtue, or the truth will repel you, but the truth will purify God's church. For those who are trapped in false teaching, Peter says, it would have been better for those people to have not known the truth at all because they're back to eating their own vomit, they're back to wallowing the mire. What's happened is they've kind of gotten an inoculation from true religion. They've had just enough religion that it's hardened them to the true gospel. The false teaching has poisoned them, and they are harder to truth now than when they were in the church. And I'm sure if you think about people you know, you can think about people you've watched this happen. They've walked in the church, they have fallen away from the gospel, they are harder to reach than the average unbeliever who's never been brought in. They never stop being dogs or sows, but now they've had just enough religion to say, I understand what religion is, it's Joel Olstein. You know, it's worse for them that that happened, and the Apostle Peter is saying, don't let that happen to you, but it's actually good for God's church. When somebody walks out the door here and says, I am not going to listen to this teaching. Yes, you presented it from scripture, but I don't like it and I'm not going to stand by it. I'm walking. It hurts, but it truly helps. It is the purification of God's church. Jesus drove these disciples away. He drove them away not by machinations, not by, you know, internecine politics or anything. The only thing he used was God's truth. And the truth couldn't be stood. And they walked away. And the Greek is emphatic. It means they don't come back. They are done. That's God winnowing the church. I have all faith in God to winnow his church. May God grant, though, that we take his warning seriously. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm a converted person. I'm not a, I'm not a sow. I'm not a, I'm not a dog. So, uh, you know, I can, I can listen to false teaching. I mean, that's kind of like the person saying, well, 
you know, I've got a, I've got a, a pretty healthy buildup of immunity to poison, so I'll just drink a little bit of it. You know, just a bit. I mean, what's the big deal of just some poison? False teaching is poison. It is a serious, serious deal if the truth is being taught or not. And the apostle implores you to receive truth. There is only one truth. It is found in the scripture. The scripture defines it. And any teacher who speaks a word against what the scripture is teaching, it doesn't matter how winsome they are. It doesn't matter how likable you find them. It doesn't matter how smart they seem to be. It doesn't matter what their charisma is. They are trying to poison you. And those who attempt to poison you don't love you.